We've all heard some great lawyer jokes. Trust us, we've heard them, all of them. But without sounding too adversarial, lawyers are humans too. In fact, that's the main theme of this podcast. Welcome to The Human Lawyer, the time and place where we have conversations with lawyers focusing on the intersection of the existential and the practical. Nick Fogel is a story about higher education, student loans, switching careers, and paying off a quarter million dollars in debt. Hello, adulting. Today, you'll find Nick as the founder and CEO of Churnkey, an integration with the SaaS company's billing provider to save those companies money immediately. In short, Nick has a mousetrap helping reduce churn, an account manager and customer experience person's dream. Today's episode will only touch on the surface of Nick's story, to learn more, you should probably check out nickvogel.com. His post-undergrad life began at Walmart, unloading trucks and stocking frozen foods. Uh, he would wear a jacket so he could hide his name tag in case he saw a classmate. So he did what most people would do in that circumstance. He went to law school, insert the joke. Uh, as tough as it may have been to work at Walmart, um, 2012 and beyond were probably much tougher for Nick. Saddled with debt, debt and perhaps dire job prospects owed in part to the financial collapse of 2008 and nine. So from working as a shuttle driver at Makiwa to learning how to code, to landing an insur- internship at a reputable software company, to a litigious freelance experience, to a job, to paying off his debt, to founding and exiting two companies. Nick's here, likely a place he never thought he'd be, or did he? Um, let's chat. Welcome to the Human Lawyer Podcast, Nick. Oh, that's a, a doozy of an intro. I try to forget about a lot of that, but let's unpack it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is, this is, uh, you know, if you ascribe to the idea that nothing is wasted, which I tend to believe, then this is like, this is all part of your magic. Yeah. I, I think you're right. Had it not been for those formidable years, uh, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't be where I am today. So like, I think the thing I, you showed up on like my radar through LinkedIn a, a few months ago, and I saw, uh, we, you know, we lose connection after law school, and I saw the coding story, and I was like, holy shit, like, <laughs> you learned how to code. So like, yeah, uh, I guess just take it, take us back to that place. Like, you're, I get, I, <clears throat> yeah, I, we can do that. Um, and I think this is always interesting to, um, lawyers, because it sounds like such a dramatic shift going from, um, you know, law school and then dealing with computer code, but they're actually pretty similar. And just to kind of weave the narrative of like where I was, why on earth would you do that? Because I got that question. I remember um, this was 2012 when we finished school. And um, I think the legal recession kind of trailed the greater financial recession. There weren't a lot of jobs and I got lowballed. I'd been at a firm where I clerked the last two years of law school and they lowballed me with the job offer, barely enough to cover the interest on the loan payments, by the way, um, you know, after, you know, housing and things are covered. So I was just like, wow, you know, the job I thought was going to be critical to launching my legal career is just not, it's not there. So then I was like, okay, well, I have to do something about this high debt. It's growing super fast. I did like Obama's um, income-based repayment thing. And it was like clear it was going to negative amortize. And um, I was like, okay, well, I've got to find a way to pay these off. So I started looking at federal jobs because the federal jobs, you know, 10 years, they'll pay it all off for you. That was like the only way I could foresee me paying these things down. 
so I started applying for federal like uh, legal jobs, you know, count, chief of counsel uh, office, um, ended up taking the Missouri bar, looking at a job at the St. Louis Fed. And I got shortlisted for that. It was looking good. They said, we'll get you, it's, you should be a shoe in. We'll get back to you in two weeks. And if anybody's gone down the federal job application process, you probably aren't surprised to hear. I never heard back. Still waiting on that response from the St. Louis Fed. Um, but yeah, so around that same time, I'd always had this idea around the educational uh, law school pedagogy, the Socratic method. It just seemed inefficient to me. And maybe that resonates with listeners. But the idea of going home, reading 100 pages of case law, going back, and really, you know, most of us end up just finding outlines online and just regurgitating those, uh, you know, when you're called on. But during that time, I was like, there's got to be a better way to help people learn law. And I wasn't just talking about attorneys or aspiring attorneys. I was talking about laymen. So I had this great idea. I'm going to make it really easy for um, anyone to learn about law that's applicable to them. So I'd started my first entrepreneurial project during this period where I'm in limbo, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And I had to teach myself the code because I was a first time entrepreneur with an idea, even though I was like, hey, I'll give you equity. No software engineer is going to waste time doing that. Like, who is this guy? So I had to teach myself. And <clears throat> there are two things that law school really helped me to, uh, I, I think it really helped me in a few ways. One, you learn how to work like an animal in law school. I mean, the amount of self-teaching you have to do and the discipline that it takes to ingest large bodies of new information, analyze it, and then use that. You, you know, you have to synthesize something out of that analysis. That's helpful. And then learning how to analyze like law itself and language itself is really helpful in learning how to code. Um, you know, in law in, in code, you have a lot of these if-then statements. It's just one example of like a you know computer programming paradigm is uh conditional statements. Well, that's like a proviso clause in a you know contract. It's it's very similar. So I'd always been a little intimidated because I thought it was this, you know, heavy mathematic component in writing code. And it's really not. It's really about language. And if you're an attorney, you've got a deep mastery of human language. And it's not that difficult to translate that knowledge into learning to program. Granted, it took me, you know, a good six to nine months of like driving. I was driving a shuttle out of Kiwa Island and I would just like park my shuttle and like work on this project. <clears throat> And I just thought it was a means to an end, you know, little project. And um, the St. Louis Fed job would come through. When it didn't, my wife was like, you, you've got to figure something out. You've got to get a job. Um, and as much as, as nice as it was out on Kiowa Island, I still want to get back there. Maybe when I retire one day, I'll go back to the shuttle job. Um, but I, I landed a job internship at a publicly traded software company here in Charleston called Blackbaud. And just... I applied that same work, work ethic that we're trained to employ as attorneys to the software industry and just was there first thing in the morning before my boss. I was there after. I was learning everything I could, asking colleagues. And that turned into a full-time job after that. that so that's an experience too, the Blackboard experience that, um, is, I think what's interesting uh, as an outsider, what I think about that experience for you is you had had experience working at a law firm and, mm -hmm. and, you know, perhaps some might say that experience or what it's like to be an employee in that environment might be different than what it's like being an employee, like 
as someone who's working for the business, um, someone who's, you know, whether you're a software developer or an engineer or customer experience. And so here you are, not only are you doing something potentially substantively that is new, uh, but you're also sort of in a work environment that might be foreign to a lot of attorneys or aspiring attorneys. So just super curious about, you know, how you, how you showed up in that, in that environment, like with your colleagues so that you weren't like yeah. a gunner, as they say in law school or, you know, uh, the proclivities and uh, perceptions that lawyers carry with them. You have to fight that. And um, I thought it was so weird. I got there and um, at like 1130, everybody in cubicles around me, all the other software engineers said, let's go play foosball. And stopped in the middle of like primetime working hours, went downstairs, played foosball for a few hours, not hours, but like between foosball, getting lunch, getting coffee, and then coming back. It's like a few hours in the day. And I was like, this is crazy. And for a few weeks, I didn't even go, you know, I wasn't one of the team. I would just stay there and work. And eventually I was like, all right, these people are going to think I'm a, you know, a lunatic. So I'm going to, you know, start building rapport and like becoming friends with some of these colleagues. And I think that was a challenging, um, area for me to realize like, okay, well, most people don't have that same level of, um, you know, minimal work hours a week, or it's just a different mindset going into the large corporations. And um, even some of the fast moving startups don't have that same expectation around, you know, the, the lack of work-life balance and, you know, doing everything for the firm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's super interesting. So then, um, Tell, well, let's not get too down the the startup rabbit hole before uh, going this direction. Your family, yeah, in your in your a blog uh, or on your website, you mentioned like in the 2012 time period, your wife had worked in the nonprofit sector. Yeah, um, internet tells me that you might have a kid, and so you know uh, you've got you got the family stuff going on in the background. So to, to talk about how that was, how you were dealing with that um, from 2012 into through Black. Bond. Yeah. So like, um, you know, I, we actually didn't have a kid for a few years later and that was good. I don't think I could have handled the stress of that added stress, but um, 2012, like finances were so bad. You know, I took, I did my last like student loan, um, cash injection for bar study. And then I um, paid like my final rent. And I was like, you know, I'd had all these applications going out. I was like, surely like I'm going to get, you know, some kind of legal job. And October came around and nothing had panned out yet. We were, you know, I did a cash advance on my credit card to pay our last month's rent. And we were so desperate. After that, we didn't have a job. My wife was making like 27,000 a year at a nonprofit here. And Charleston's a pretty expensive place to live. So we had no way to survive. I had no, no family money, nothing, no, nothing to fall back on. So I was like, let me go on Craigslist and look at housing wanted ads. So I, I put a housing wanted ad out and said, young married couple, non-smoking, no pets, no kids. And I looked out, <clears throat> somebody responded and they said, um, we built a guest house out here on John's Island for our family. Now this was a remote, pretty remote area. It's like 45 minutes away from where I lived at the time. Um, but she was like, I'll do it a thousand dollars month to month. It's a deal. So we drove out there. Luckily we weren't ax murdered. We had a great setup through that. Um, my family had been going, my like personal family had been going through 
like traumatic experiences too. My mother had a brain aneurysm. She survived, but she was hospitalized. There was just a lot of other things going on at that time. Um, so it was really survival mode, figuring out, okay, what do I want out of life? And this was that period where I was kind of like open to anything, kind of reinventing myself, working in, um, teaching myself to code and realizing there are things that matter outside of just law and getting this you know, law job that I felt like I had to have. So yeah, that's kind of the family backstory and some of the pressure that was was going on during that time. Yeah. All right. So then fast forward, you're chugging along at Blackbaud, doing your thing. Um, and then you you might have another idea. You, you have a business that you feel like uh, yeah. might, have, might have some legs. Yeah. And it started to become pretty clear at Blackbaud that I was penalized for having a, um, you know, a, a law degree and a law license. I don't know if it was that, um, you know, my superiors thought that I was a threat to their job or if it was about pay scales Them thinking, okay, well, this guy's just going to leave as soon as something better comes his way. So it became harder to like grow through the org, particularly into any kind of managerial role, despite exceeding expectations on every performance review. And around that same time, I was like, well, this is a nice job. I got benefits, you know, it, it's paying the bills. Student loans are still, you know, accruing by this point. Let's fast forward. It was like 2015, 2016. My loans had grown from like 160 or 170K after law school. And when we started, those grad plus loans were 8.5%. Pretty sure that was the figure, which is insane. Like that's like usury. It, I mean, insane how high those are. So they were negative amortizing. Even though I was paying like 400 or 500 a month, they were negative amortizing that entire time. And um, I was like, I got I to gotta pay this down somehow. So I did two things. One was like, the only way for me to pay these down is to own my own business. I'm not going to make enough salary in the near term to beat these. Um, the interest was accruing at $52 a day, which is insane. Um, so I started working on a few entrepreneurial projects. I also started freelancing at a um, software like engineering little startup that we had. It was a kind of services consulting gig and made a ton of money during that, doing that and also had more connections and experience through that to start iterating across some ideas. The first idea, do you know what um, Clubhouse is? Or I guess it's like Twitter spaces I now. Do. I do, yeah. That was our, our first app that I built was, we called it Utah Sports. And uh, <laughs> we were we were quickly um, issued a cease and desist for trademark infringements. I should have known better. Um, Utah is like a you know pretty generic name. Um, but that was like an interesting experience because we built all this technology over like 18 months. It was really cool, but it was ahead of the time. Like we were really into podcasting and audio back mm -hmm. then, but um, the market wasn't. Podcasting was still very niche. And we had, you know, a lot of people using this app uh, to talk about sports, connect, you know, with, um, with audio, but we couldn't raise money and we could not monetize it. People weren't willing to pay for this. So we had to fold that. Uh, but in the like 11th hour, as we were spinning down this business and realized that we're going to have to work on something else. I created a tool. I, I was like, this little tool could help us to kind of bootstrap an audience for this. People, it's very hard to share audio over social. Mm -hmm. used to, it used to be a lot harder. Um, so we commercialized a technology called the audiogram. Uh, the, an audiogram is basically something that if you listen to podcasts, you've seen it. You take audio and you turn it into a video by rendering a waveform, adding like podcast background art. So we just like created this little tool. It wasn't intended to make money initially. It was just like, Let's make it easier for these people to like share their content on social and bring people to this platform. Well, it turned out people really liked this tool. 
they're willing to pay for the tool. They'd pay us like 10 bucks a month. And we realized this is the business we should have been building all along. Mm -hmm. the, the lesson from this whole experience is about proximity to a problem space mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur. Like if you stick with something long enough and you don't get too attached to an idea, you're open to uh, opportunities. Had we not wasted that time working in audio and podcasting and radio, we would have never uncovered this problem. And, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that audio is hard to share on social. So we grew that over the course of like those 2017 when we first launched that. And we exited that business in 2021 after we'd kind of bootstrapped it to um, about 2 million a year in annual recurring revenue. Wow, I love that. Yeah, there's a lot about that, um, that your experience and answer that I love. Um, probably some of my own experiences, um, not as successful as yours, but mainly your statement about being proximate. Because, you know, um, you know, that's proximate has a lot of, you know, whether, whether your heart and soul is into social justice, uh, Brian mm -hmm. Stevenson would tell you about being proximate and how that impacts how you might view uh, a person's situation. Um, and to your, to your point in the entrepreneurial space, it's like, from what I heard from you, it's like, if you stay in the game and you stay close to the problem long enough and, and you continue to apply the problem solving skills that you know you innately have from your career, like as a law student and sort of working your way through different things, you're you're likely going to find something if you're willing That's to right. stay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard not to if you stick with it and stay open minded. I think that's the key is like. There was a shift I had to make internally where it was like, you know, the field of dreams mentality. If you build it, they'll come. And that's so wrong for any kind of um, building something of value to the market. You've got to listen to the market. Don't just build a cool product that seems cool to you. You need to find that. Is this something people are willing to pay for? Yeah. Um, all right. So then you exit 2021. Did you have, um, was, was Chernkey an immediate thing thereafter or was it something that you sort of stumbled on? Yeah, this goes back to like the the workaholic that uh, law school can tend to turn people into. Um, so rewind a little bit back in that. So the business we sold was called Wave. And um, as we were building Wave, we had this horrible problem with customer churn. Subscription fatigue is a real thing. And, you know, most software solutions these days, the business model is a recurring subscription. And with Wave, like we were getting close to about a, a million in annual recurring revenue. So these are subscriptions that you can count on to you know, return a uh, million dollars every year. And we hit this problem with churn. So we were like, okay, well, at this point, our churn is going to exceed our growth. So what can we do? We hired consultants, spent way too much money on consultants, tried some of these legacy software solutions and nothing was really moving the needle. So I was like always curious about offboarding. I looked at Netflix who had a really great cancellation process where you go out and based on your you know, they would have to give you a survey based on that response. They might offer you something. Uh, yeah, this was back in like 2018, 2019. And I thought that was really novel. And, you know, Netflix has probably a hundred people focused on this one little aspect of business. But for a small business, you know, we have to spend a lot of time building this like offboarding experience. That was the idea, right? And if you think about it, my, my background was in economics. And I always thought about, well, you know, for a, an entrepreneur or a business operator, you're a rational profit maximizing individual. You want to maximize profits. 
And software is a business where you have very low marginal cost, almost zero marginal cost, and your margins are super high. So, um, and consumers often, when they click cancel, they don't really want to cancel. Um, at least some don't. There's a reason they're canceling. They have cancellation intent. So if I could find a way to um, intercept that cancellation intent and negate that by offering them something, if they said they weren't using the product right now, I'd offer them the opportunity to pause and say, hey, you've, you've created this many videos. Are you sure you want to cancel? Why not just pause for a few months until you're ready to come back? That worked incredibly well. Another idea I had was around price sensitivity. So if somebody had budget issues that were, you know, and budget issues tend to be something that's short-term, offer them a 40% off discount for three months. So um, we started iterating on a lot of these different areas and um, found that, wow, this took our churn from 13% per month to 8%. And in the process, I, we were also um, dealing with a business broker at the time because we thought we would eventually want to sell the business. And they were like, <laughs> they kind of chuckled and said, you're not going to get your target acquisition price because your churn's too high. You've got to replace your entire body of customers every year. So uh, we knew this was a big problem. And by addressing it with this internal tool we built, we basically doubled our valuation or our value multiple. So it was an incredible outcome. As we were having these conversations with brokers, and then we ended up not even needing a broker. This was where my law degree came in handy. We saved like 10% of the sale price because I was able to do most all of the legal side myself. Um, so that was that was huge. I would still probably recommend I, I had outside counsel helping me with some of it. Um, but instead of paying, you know, hundreds of thousands to a broker, we paid like 10,000 just for the, you know, external partners. So that was an amazing uh, place where I was like, all right, well, maybe my law degree is, is you know, paying for itself to some extent here. Uh, yeah. So we exited the business in March of 2021. And that same month we launched Turnkey publicly to help other businesses overcome some of those same problems that are native to subscription businesses. Got it. So turnkey, turnkey was sort of something that was existing in the background of uh, wave as you were kind mm -hmm. of trying to uh, advance the multiple. <clears throat> and yeah. And it goes back to proximity, right? Like yeah. this is an idea that came out of our own pain and, you know, giant billion dollar publicly traded companies. They had teams dedicated to this problem. We knew how hard it was to build something like this. And we said, well, any company that, you know, is worth less than $100 million, they, they don't have tons and tons of engineers. They just want to throw out this problem and manage it. So why don't we build that for them so they can just plug it into their existing software? Yeah, that's way cool. Um, all right. So now what? So now you're chugging along with Churnkey. Um, how, what, and it's, it's a... Um, uh, a different macroeconomic environment for software companies and for access to capital in general, um, some would say. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess I have the privilege of working at a software company and I know that that's something that we monitor closely. So just curious, but on the flip side of that, perhaps for you, um, I can't speak to this specifically though, Charleston seems to be like a bubble. I, I got, maybe, maybe the rules don't apply in Charleston. Um, they tend not to. So um, yeah. Uh, curious what your sort of um, perspective view is based on where you live and um, what you're what you're trying to achieve with your business. Yeah, so for like real estate, it certainly is a bubble. Um, you know, prices don't they just keep going up and up and up. Um, and I don't see that changing. Everybody now that remote culture is a thing, a lot of people are, have moved from the Northeast down here. Um, but on the um, 
if we're talking about access to capital, things like that, the entire market is, I mean, liquidity is all on the sidelines right now. Businesses uh, or venture firms invested so much into speculative startups in 2021, 2022, they're kind of tapped out and they've got money sidelined for future rounds to help businesses that are struggling with a potential down round. Uh, but for us, it's kind of what you alluded to. This product works exceptionally well in a recessionary environment. If you think about some of the things that are happening with high inflation and fears of a recession, people are suddenly monitoring their subscriptions with more fervor. They're looking out every month and saying, all right, what can I cancel this month? So at a time like this, Turnkey has become indispensable for businesses. It's kind of a competitive advantage if you think about it, because somebody leaves your product, they may come back later recognizing a need for this type of product but they've got shiny object syndrome. They want to try something new or different. And by having some of these offers to help them stay longer, offering them that flexibility, not only do you leave them with a better impression because you're able to meet them in the middle, you're able to keep their, you know, their subscription online. It's not canceled. So um, yeah, turnkey has been doing very well during this environment, better than we were during the boom times. We, well, um, in an effort to close the human loop, the it's uh and we've just we've just touched the surface but it this your story is one i think that um perhaps can in, inspire others i know a lot of our peers have, were in a similar and perhaps still are uh in a similar student debt position and uh maybe this is my last question for you you've paid yeah. off your debt right i have yeah that was hard <laughs> what's that what's that feel like it, I mean, it was like the biggest release, relief ever. I had the spreadsheet and like, I even had a countdown. I was like, okay, you know, I'll pay this off in five years if I throw everything I can at it. And I ended up paying it off in like three years, I think, just by going, you know, insane. This was before the wave sale too. So it was amazing to go into that sale and it's like, oh, well, these are already paid off. So I can catch up on retirement, some of these other things. Um, you know, as an attorney right now, I know there's a lot of, fear and speculation around AI, chat GPT, some of the new technologies and the idea that could this displace legal jobs? And I don't think it will. I think it will make attorneys a lot more efficient. And if you have any curiosity and you're looking at ways to, you know, kind of dip that, you know, your toe in the water or entrepreneurial waters, I'd recommend exploring that and seeing what you can do because it's a tool that is going to be instrumental to the practice of law going forward and making you more efficient. Uh, so I'll just kind of tease that as something I see as a huge opportunity, not a threat to the, um, to the legal field. I uh, love that. Love the tease. Love that you shared some of your time with us and uh, thanks for being a guest and um, keep doing, keep pushing. We need to recognize that this is possible because of the hard work and support of the well-run media team. They make this easy. And speaking of easy, big thanks to Huga Coworking for access to their studio. And of course, the lawyers who agree to take time out of their busy, busy schedules to be here, even though we're sure they have better things to do. So thanks for saying yes.